Don't Fear the Wasteland, an apocalyptic broadcast. Testing. Testing. We good, Frankie? Alright then, let's get straight to it. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Matthew 24, 29. Now, I ain't religious. Not really. Not anymore. I'll sit in on Ginger's sermons every couple of Sundays, mostly because she holds church outside when it's nice, on the same porch where I like to drink my coffee. But that bit of Bible really stuck with me when I read it after Daddy died and the Papiskis left and I was alone with too much free time. That was before Tripp and Eva came back, before even Sam and Frankie. The weather had turned scorching and when the heat of the day drove me inside, I decided to return to Birchville and check out the library. Most of the books in the Shelton House were on agricultural religion, which, while helpful, were not my cup of tea. I stopped by the grocery first and scooped up all the hard candy I could find. My sweet tooth had been acting up. The place was just as empty as it had been last time. I took some time gathering up other things that were useful, like med kits, canned goods, and fire starters. I filled a cart with things and bagged them all at the register. Then I went across the street to the library. It had not been ransacked, thankfully. Some sins just can't be forgiven. I wandered the aisles, judging books by the covers, feeling safe in the stacks, when a small noise interrupted my peace, a gasp and footsteps. I jerked around and caught the slightest glimpse of someone ducking through an employee's-only door. Against my better judgment, I followed them. The door led into a break room with stairs down to the basement. A young woman near my age hovered just before the stairway, looking so scared that I put my hands up and promised not to hurt her. She rubbed her arm nervously and asked what I wanted. Just a book, I told her honestly, and asked if she were alone. Are you? She fired back. I shrugged and she returned the gesture. You can trust me or not, I said finally after too much silence, and she just kind of deflated. She must have decided to trust me because she told me about her friend stuck in the basement after they busted her leg and couldn't manage the stairs anymore. They'd both been here a while. All winter, I asked. She nodded. I remembered her then, the gal I'd seen on my first trip to Birchville. I asked her to show me her friend. As we descended the stairs and I prepared for an ambush, the woman told me that her friend, Frankie, had fallen two weeks ago and gashed open their leg. They were mute, and talking through ASL left a lot to be desired because she wasn't fluent. She kept using the word they, and I finally had to ask why. Turned out Frankie was non-binary, and despite the apocalypse, I saw no reason to be an asshole, so I nodded and made note. The woman finally told me her name was Samma, and that she was, or used to be, a nurse in an ICU, and she'd stitched up Frankie the best she could. Samma was pretty sure Frankie was healing, but they were stuck in the basement until their leg was better, or they had another person to help, though it wasn't likely they had anywhere else to go. There was no ambush waiting on me. Instead, a figure lay on a cot. I looked around at all the supplies and saw a fallout shelter sign. That explained the abundance of MRE wrappers laying around. I stepped closer to Frankie, whose eyes widened in fear. They signed something to Samma, who said she'd found me in the library and I seemed friendly. You make me sound like a dog, I griped, before I turned to Frankie and said, Samma said you busted your leg and are stuck down here. Frankie nodded. I looked between Frankie and Samma and told them about the farm, which had power and food. I suggested making Frankie comfortable there. Sam's eyes lit up and she looked at her friend, hopeful. Frankie nodded and Sam squealed. Together, we got Frankie to the bed of my truck, though it weren't easy. Then I went back for a couple cases of MREs. 
It was only on the drive back to the last hurrah with Sama and her constant need for conversation, which I didn't mind after being alone for so long, that I realized I'd forgotten to get a book. We set Frankie up in the master bedroom because the stairs were too much a challenge. Sama's work on Frankie's leg was solid, and with some pharmaceutical help, they were healing nicely. I found a crutch in a closet, and after a few days, Frankie was clunking around the house. They really enjoyed sitting on the porch strumming Shelby's guitar. Sama said music was the only noise Frankie could make. It was like having a voice. Sama herself sang beautifully, low and clear and perfect. She'd join Frankie on the porch after dinner and sing along to the music. Between helping with chores, she taught me sign language. I was abysmal at it, but I learned to understand the alphabet and common phrases. Frankie appreciated my effort, and I appreciated their company. I don't think Sama fully trusted me for nearly a month after I brought her and Frankie home. She was nervous, jumping when I came into the room or flinching if I accidentally snuck up on her. Sama and Frankie had been at the last hurrah for two months. I was keeping my own journal in a notebook taken from the grocery store. Sam and I made a couple supply runs and had yet to find anyone else. It was nice to get off the farm, though, even if Birchville was empty. First, though, I had to teach a very uncomfortable Sam how to shoot a rifle. I wasn't taking any chances, especially with us having the only working truck and what was likely miles. We drove out a little ways into empty fields in case all the noise drew crawlers. I wanted a clear line of sight and little chance that they'd find their way back to the farm. Some old hay bales were our targets. I spray-painted a scary zombie on a couple and told Frankie Dame for the chest. Remove a solid chunk of their torso and down goes a crawler, no headshot needed. Frankie took to shooting without any trouble. Lining up their shot, I barely had to correct Frankie's stance or grip before they were blowing apart the hay zombies. Sama? Well, not so much. She was shaky and kept closing her eyes before pulling the trigger. All her shots went wide and low, tearing chunks out of the ground long past her target. Sama, darling, please, for the love of God, open your eyes. What if someone walks in front of you and you shoot them? Not like she hit them even then, Frankie signed at us. Sama stuck her tongue out in response before saying, I'm sorry, it's the loud noise, it makes me nervous. It's just a noise, I said, trying to calm her nerves. Don't be scared of it, look. I took the rifle from her and sighted down the barrel. The zombie filled my gaze. You breathe in deep. Concentrate on your target and just accept it's going to be loud. Then with your eyes open, you squeeze the trigger and boom. I took the shot and the rifle blast echoed over the field. Hay scattered in the wind. Bullseye, I finished with a grin. She took the rifle from me and tried walking through my steps. Breathe in, she said. Concentrate. Accept the noise and boom. She pulled the trigger and her eyes stayed open. Mostly anyway. She flinched as the bullet left the rifle and clipped the haybell zombie in the shoulder. I considered it a success. After another hour, she was hitting three out of five times and mostly center mass, so I took what I could and called it a day. We'd attracted three crawlers with no sense to run from gunshots, and before more could show up, I figured we should head back, especially before the sun could set. It was a good day. One of many good days. Life had a routine again, and I was happy. I'd wake with the sun, make biscuits and coffee, then spend time in my garden hauling over well water to keep the soil damp. Sama would trudge down around nine and be incapable of conversation until she had two cups of coffee. She'd sit on the porch and watch me pull weeds. Frankie would join us at some point, coming slowly down the stairs. 
They'd given me my room back after their leg could manage the stairs. Frankie and Samma had put bedrooms next to each other, leaving me alone in the master. The sound of them moving around up there was a comforting reminder that I wasn't alone anymore. But I didn't necessarily expect them to stay. Once Frankie's leg was healed, I thought they might move on, and the thought depressed me. In hindsight, I should have just asked their plans, but I was scared of the answer. Scared of being alone again. It was in August, as we sat on the porch, and Sam sang Jolene to Frankie Strummin that I'd realized I'd do whatever it took to keep them around. But then Tripp showed up and threatened everything we knew. Frankie was in the office, fooling with Mr. Shelton's ham radio. Frankie was passingly familiar with the setup and thought a working radio might prove useful in finding others in need. Samma was outside hanging laundry in the bright sun. It was sweltering. From the kitchen window, I noticed beads of sweat roll down her cheek. I was washing the breakfast dishes by hand, half daydreaming, half watching Samma as she stretched on her tiptoes to reach the clothesline. She was tiny, nearly half a head shorter than me. When she stood next to me, helping me cook or clean, my eyes would follow the curve of her ear or the shape of her nose and profile. It was more than simply her pretty looks. I felt like a moth, wings burning as I got too close. If she noticed, Samma didn't say anything, at least not right away. As I set a plate aside to dry, I glanced out the window and saw something that made my throat tighten. A herd of crawlers chased a man across the field, heading directly towards the farmhouse and Samma. I was out the door and off the porch in a flash, yelling at her to watch out. She wasted no time in dropping the laundry and running up onto the porch, having just spotted the charging herd. The man was tall, wearing a tattered plaid shirt and dirty jeans. He was just ahead of three crawlers who seemed fascinated by him and were simply waiting on him to tire before closing the distance. I told Sam to grab the 308 from behind the kitchen door. Mr. Shelton had liked his guns and had a solid collection in the cabinet. I stood in the dirt and put the closest crawler in my sights. Now, some say killing a crawler is hard, too much like killing a person. It was tough the first time, but each one after got easier. I had someone to protect now, so as I put that running crawler down, I felt less than nothing. The first bullet hit and the crawler's chest exploded blood. The second shot wasn't so lucky, but it got the point across and the other two crawlers turned tail and ran. I let them go in case I needed the bullets for the stranger still headed my way. He made it to the yard, managed to don't shoot, and collapsed in the grass. Samma glanced at me unsure. I told her to get some water. I approached the man slowly and rolled him over with my boot. His face was covered in old bruises, but underneath that, in the mud, I guessed he was 35. His beard could have been throwing me off, though. Samma returned with a bucket of water from the well. I'd meant for her to bring a glass, but I made do, dropping half the bucket on the guy's face like I'd seen in the movies. It was fun, and it worked. The man rolled sideways, coughing. Between the coughs, he wrapped an arm around his ribs and groaned. I asked who the hell he was, and he coughed out a name I was familiar with. Trip Lyson. The handyman? I asked, and he nodded. I lowered my rifle. Shelby's journal had spoken highly of Trip. I asked him what his wife's name was, wanting to prove he was who he claimed to be. His answer, Eva, was correct, and he demanded to see Leo or Shelby. I asked Samma to help him up. She loaned him an arm, and we walked him into the house. He groaned as he climbed the porch steps. Samma dropped him into a chair and started pressing her fingers along his ribs. He tried to bat her hands away, but she fixed him with a stern glare, and he sighed, allowing her to continue. He asked if she were a doctor, and she said curtly, Nurse. 
After a few minutes, she told him he had a couple fractured ribs, but he shrugged her off. What happened to you? I asked him. Contact football, he replied snarky. What do you think? I think you brought three crawlers onto my property and need to be more polite. Welcome to the apocalypse, he replied, scrubbing at his face. He asked if the water worked, and I nodded. After washing up in the sink, I asked him again about his bruises and ribs. Instead of answering, he asked if Shelby and Leo were dead. I took pity on him and told him what I knew about the previous owners of the last rock. Tripp was silent for a while after that before he shared his story. Eva, her sister Ashley, and Tripp had left for a survivor base promising food, shelter, and protection. They couldn't convince the Sheltons to go with them. The camp had essentially been a military state, with men and women separated in a strict curfew. People weren't allowed to leave, and food was meager. After nearly a year, Tripp got fed up and demanded to see his wife. He'd been dragged out of camp, beaten, and left for the crawlers. With nowhere else to go, he made his way home to the last raw. Two days ago, a herd spotted him stumbling across the fields and started to circle like sharks. I'd saved his life, pretty much. He didn't seem too grateful of that fact. He asked me what gave me the right to move in just because the Sheltons were dead and I told him the apocalypse or haven't you noticed. Tripp tried to stare me down, but men have never scared me. When I didn't break his gaze, he huffed and told me our time was up. He'd give us a couple of days and some supplies, but then we had to leave. I laughed at him. Samma looked back and forth between us, worry on her face. Mister, you're full of it if you think we're going anywhere. Frankie, watching us carefully from the hallway, asked Samma a question with their hands. Tripp answered before Samma could, telling us that we had to leave. Look, I said, either we stay or I run you off with a couple bullets in your ass. It's your choice. He didn't like that response and stomped outside without any more words. I went to lock up all the guns. Tripp returned to the house later that evening in a mood, just as I was serving dinner. I handed him a plate and he gruffed a thanks. The mill was uncomfortable and silent. Afterwards, as Sam and I washed up and Frankie went to get their guitar, Tripp leaned back at the table chewing on a toothpick. He asked me about the garden beds out back, and I'd turn down the music before telling him they were mine. He half-heartedly praised me, saying they were decent enough work. He asked if I thought about getting livestock. Sure, let's pop down to the auction and get those, I snarked. No need to sass me, missy, he said, making a mistake with the name calling. All it did was piss me off, but I let it go when he continued on, saying the next farm over had cows and horses running loose. All right, mister, look. Never call me Missy again. Second, does this mean I don't have to shoot you and we can stay? He shrugged and said, we'll see how useful you are first. He offered me his hand and we shook on it. I was still keeping the guns locked up, though. I'm Sheriff, coming to you from the last hurrah on the outskirts of Birchville, Alabama. Find a map and follow Route 109 until you see our billboards. They'll lead you true. We need trustworthy folk to protect what we built. You'll get food and shelter in return. All are welcome. Just remember, no funny business. Don't Fear the Wasteland is a story-driven podcast by Joey Hall, chronicling Sheriff's journey in the apocalypse and broadcast as a radio show from the last hurrah in Alabama. It's an oasis for survivors in the blasted remains of the old world, or Earth as we know it now. To learn more about the wasteland where Sheriff spends her days, check out don'tfearthewasteland.com and joeyhall.com. Thanks for listening.